remember that it's not supposed to be easy because if it was easy, then everybody would do it. And what you are getting rewarded for as an entrepreneur is grit and endurance. Welcome to The Irresistible Factor, a podcast where I talk to founders and investors and retailers about what it takes to launch successful brands, from developing a compelling proposition and brand identity, to raising capital, to getting distribution, and more. My name is Christy Bridges, and I'm a marketing expert with tons of experience and a true love for all things health and wellness. Welcome, everyone, to today's episode of The Irresistible Factor. Today is an extra special day because we are talking with Nick Saltarelli, who is the founder and co-CEO of Midday Squares. And if you haven't heard about this brand, I can almost guarantee you that you will soon. So welcome to the podcast, Nick. I'm so, so happy to be chatting with you. I'm glad we got to make this work. Same. I'm pumped that we made it work, too. Honestly, I, I do really mean that. Awesome. So tell us a little bit first about Midday Square. So all the things we talked about going forward are in context, and then we can talk about how you're building your brand at lightning speed and all the really interesting and disruptive things you're doing in the category. Yeah. I mean, I think you do have to start there for it to really make sense. For us, Midday Squares, we're three partners. I did this with my wife and my brother-in-law, but the most important piece of the whole thing is we didn't do it for those reasons. We did it Really independently, I actually had a business relationship with my wife prior to her being my wife. So Midday Squares was conceived before we were married. There was this want to always want to work together because we work so well together. I invested in her clothing company. And so we had gotten to know each other really well on an operational level. And when that came to an end, we were not ready to end working together. And so that's when it became, well, what could we just do. And it was like, hey, let's just figure out something that we can do together. And Midday Squares really is 10 years in the making for all of us. I think we've all been on different entrepreneurial journeys and trying different stuff. So I like to preface it with that because I think sometimes people look at Midday Squares and think that it's our first go. And if you look at it and think it's our first go, you think that, oh, wow, that's a rocket ship. And then you judge yourself to the standard that on your first go, it should look like that. But that is just not the truth. So we make sure that everybody knows this is not the first go for us as entrepreneurs. And that's why I think you're seeing the speed of success with Midday Squares is we came in with a lot of battle wounds. And so we knew what to do. <laughs> I love it. Battle wounds are exactly the right term. How many companies did you start before this one? Only one that was successful, and I wasn't even the founder. I joined the group. And then as a founder, I tried three before. Okay. So you have some experience. Yeah. All didn't work. The ones that I was founders on and the one that did work was one that I joined as a co-founder, but was not the lead idea. And that was Rocket Ship too. It was a software company. And Les probably has three tries under her belt. And Jake has two, one of successful fitness company and a clothing brand that didn't work out, but worked out in a lot of ways. And that's why Jake caught our attention. He only joined a year after we came up with the idea. And so the preface for everybody is we sell functional chocolate. And the reason why we went after that is we use data. And I think that's super important too, to know is that it wasn't like we put our finger in our mouth and put it up to the wind to see which way it was blowing. It was very obvious. Number one, Chocolate, $142 billion traded globally. But then when it comes to functional snacking, $22 billion in just North America. 
we got a report from someone that was an investment banker and it was very clear. It showed the growth of the real chocolate industry. And I was shocked at the numbers that I had saw and the tailwind. So when people, when we hear the word tailwinds, it's well, how fast that industry is growing compared to let's say the entire grocery set. So let's say you have typical growth of 2%. We were in double digit growth, some of them above 20%. And so my thesis is when you go into ultra competitive saturated markets, it's actually harder to fuck up than going after niche markets. But here's the big caveat is it requires real innovation. You cannot go into a saturated market without having a product that's 10x better than everything else. So it makes the barrier to entry 10x harder. That being said, if you get it right, the tailwinds that are behind you, it's insane. And that's my learnings as an entrepreneur is I've gone after niche markets and it's actually way harder to find momentum than it was to find in this market. But like I said, it's, it was very difficult to make the product that came into this market. And so, yeah, after a year of development on the product, we went after my brother-in-law, Jake. Again, he's not our partner because he's our brother-in-law. Imagine we had to actively go solicit him and convince him to join this because he had achieved something. And this is where it goes back to like success and failure are very, it actually doesn't matter. I think people put too much emphasis on what the results are rather than the doing. So Jake didn't have success with his clothing company, one could say, but one could also say he did have success because would he have been in midday squares if he didn't do that? Because mm-hmm. it caught our attention for how good he was at building a brand. He was across universities in Canada. He had the student population I saw because he was recording it. And I'd never seen people that engaged with something, like really engaged with it and got up to the NFL, LA, and he just, what I had seen him do in all of those years is crazy. And I knew that that was the missing piece to Midday Squares. Les and I are not strong at that. It doesn't come naturally to us, that part. There's something interesting that you said at the beginning. So you had a couple of things that you tried and they didn't work out and you're not calling them failures, which I think is really interesting. I also think that success and failure are so close to each other. It's crazy. Like you almost, you could fail right before you succeed or the relationship. It's almost like the love hate relationship. So I think that's interesting, but also the fact that you tried a few things and they didn't work out. What made you keep going? Like what made you say, I'm going to do it again. Is it just something that was in you? Like you always wanted to have your own thing and you just couldn't see yourself getting a regular job. No, it was uh, iteration. I was a competitive athlete my whole life. And what you learn in being a competitive athlete is skill is iterative. It gets better the more that you try, mm-hmm. the more that you practice. Yep. And so there was a clear yeah. indication that I kept on getting better at what I was doing. And in the failures, there was successes in the moments. Yeah. And you're like, when you're doing the post-mortem, you're like, if I could have gone that way, then that would have gone this way. Humans are iterative. I think the worst thing you could do is because there's there's two sets of different entrepreneurs. There's the entrepreneur that doesn't iterate and you almost feel bad for them. I've seen a few that just keep on hitting the hammer on the head the same way mm-hmm. and they're not getting success. And then there's iterative entrepreneurs. And to be honest, I have a theory that an iterative entrepreneur will always be successful. It's just a matter of time. Okay. 
That's interesting. And, and that's what kept, that's what kept me in the game was, and I think if you asked Les or Jake that, they would probably say the same thing. What kept me in the game was I knew I was getting better. Interesting. So you have to be paying attention and also be tapped into that to notice that some of the failures have successes in them because sometimes it's really hard to do that. Yeah. The intuitiveness to be in tune with you is mm-hmm. important. And one other theory that I do have is I never start a business in the same sector. It's too demoralizing. So all of the trials yep. are in drastically different sectors. That's interesting too. Because so it, it, yeah. it's fresh for you. Yeah. To go and restart something in the exact same sector is a bit demoralizing for me because all of the same start process is the same. Not saying that that's the secret sauce because I think you could start in the same sector and find success. But for me, what kept it fresh is I kept on changing industries that I was trying to be an entrepreneur in. It's interesting. And I'm sure I know this from my own experience, but I'm sure that a lot of the things that you learned translated into what you're doing now, even though they were in parallel industries. Oh my God. Yeah. Business is business. Once you realize it doesn't matter if you're making jet fuel, chocolate, software, (laughs) finance. Once you tune into the intuitiveness of that, what you're really trying to do always is what's the cost of capital and can I make a return higher than the cost of capital? And you really have two functions, which is convincing people into whatever it is that you're doing to consume or be part of it or use it. The framework is the same. It really doesn't matter. I have so many questions I want to ask you. I don't want to forget any of them. So I want to tell you a couple of things I want to talk about, and then we'll get to it. So I want to hear about the co-CEO role. You mentioned this morning that you had just finished a session with a coach slash therapist. I want to hear about that. And I also want to hear more about where you are with the brand, because you are making an incredibly big impression on the industry. I know that because I interviewed... Ellie Truesdale, and she talked about you for a good part of our interview, which was awesome. She's the best. She's amazing. And she really, I think she has an unbelievably great sense of what brands are going to be successful. And you were at the very top of her list. So that's really cool. So I want to hear more about the brand and I want to hear about those other things. So, so you take it in whatever order works for you. Let's start with the brand. So I think that the most pivotal part to success is actually pretty formulaic. Like I I could literally distill the formula of what I believe made Midday Squares move at the speed that it's currently moving. One is to make a product that's 10x better than what's in the current market. I think that's a piece that is so misinterpreted by CPG founders of how much better you need to be than the thing that's in the market to really be a breakout brand. You could find success under 10 million of revenue, I think there's going to be a ton of CPG brands. To mm-hmm. go from zero to 100 requires truthful innovation. And so that led us down a path of being forced into work from first principles. So what does that mean? You could go the route of, I want to make a brand. Let me go see what I can manufacture with co-packers. Mm-hmm. Or I want to make a brand. Here's the framework of what I want the product to be. Don't give a shit what any co-packer has to say and then have to figure out how to manufacture that at scale. And I think what ends up happening is a lot of people do the former, which is they come up with an idea, they start going to the co-manufacturers, and then they start building their product to be formulaic to what a co-manufacturer wants. 
and a co-manufacturer ends up homogenizing you. So making everything that you do as close as possible to the other stuff that they do so that they could have the greatest possibility of running their manufacturing plan at scale. That's interesting. It's logical. It is. Yeah. And, and whether they're doing it subconsciously or not, they're doing it. Why? Limited warehouse space. So limited warehouse space means they don't want to use infinite amounts of raw materials. So you come to me with a raw material and you want to use coconut sugar, but I'm already using flour sugar, let's just mm-hmm. call it. Uh, I'm going to convince you to do that because I'm already stocking it. Why do I want to bring in? And then en- enough happens that your product becomes, instead of 10x better than what's on the market, maybe one and a half times mm-hmm. better than what's on the market. And that just doesn't cut it. And so you go into the supermarket today. Let's just go into the bar space, for instance. I will. I could literally blindfold you. And if I blindfold you, let's say the skew count in the bar market is, I don't know, there's 20 brands. I think you'll think once I blindfold you and make you taste it that there's three brands because they've been homogenized. They all really run on like, especially in the bar space, there's like four co-manufacturers that do 90% of the volume in North America. That's one piece is that in order to make a 10x better product, I don't think you're going to find success in co-manufacturer. And we realized that really early. And so a lot of people will say, oh, it's interesting that you guys chose to do manufacturing yourselves. And then I'll always correct and say, we did not choose to do manufacturing ourselves. We were forced into doing manufacturing ourselves. Very different. So we made a product in a lab, an R&D lab, that we did not give a shit about what constraints existed in manufacturing. Once it was what we believed was 10x better than on the market, we went relentlessly, unapologetically to figure out how to make that get to the market because that's what we knew was going to win. That's step one. Step two is we want to take a brand and have it as big a scope as possible because chocolate is chocolate. And a lot of people wanted to reduce us into being a niche product and a niche product doesn't have the same scope in terms of brand appeal. So when you look at midday squares, you don't get that, oh, we're non-GMO or plant-based or organic or soy-free. All these things are not part of our marketing value proposition. They're just kind of what we believe is table stakes today. The brand was conceived of really telling a story and doing the antithesis of CPG, which was there was this like same fucking playbook that everybody was playing. And I'll never forget, this was Jake's brilliance was what if we go take a marketing approach from the music industry and apply it to CPG? And and literally I remember his first couple of days, there was like a slide when he presented the big idea. It had the numbers of celebrity chefs Then it had the TV numbers of Shark Tank. And he was showing that the next generation, we had the generation of celebrity chef, there's going to be, you know, the celebrity entrepreneur now, which has been happening slowly but surely. And then he had a slide with the Spice Girls, Backstreet Boys, NSYNC. And the idea was, was what if we showed entrepreneurship through the lens of what it really is instead of hustle porn? What if we just show the true environment of it? And what if we act like a band 
And instead of selling records, we sell chocolate. That was the thesis. And I remember it took a few days for it to click, but I was like, wow. Yeah. So what if we do that? And basically the second we started to think about what is the anti-thesis, we started getting somewhere. And so to take this full circle is most CPG brands don't manufacture their own product. We wanted to manufacture our product. Most CPG brands take a CPG marketing playbook. We didn't want to take a CPG. So the point I'm trying to make is when you find yourself on the side of the majority, stop and reflect and interesting stuff will come that way. And so by choosing to really think about midday squares from the ground up in a unique way that was true to ourselves and not what the industry was doing, we started to get somewhere. But a lot of that came with a ton of resistance. I mean, I can tell you there was probably 20 to 30 times that people tried killing the entire operation. How did you fund at the beginning? It took us about 25000 to get from zero to on shelves. So we, we used our own money to do that piece. Then once we were on shelves locally, and, and that's another piece that I think people have a misconception that CPG is very expensive to get into. It's not expensive yeah. to get into. It's very expensive to scale. Okay. But we got to a million dollars of revenue in Montreal only. And we were able to raise money after that, right? We had, we had proof point. We had how we were selling in cafes, how we were selling in, in local grocery stores. So the answer to me that it's hard to fund and grow a CPG business, it's not good enough. I think that's people holding onto a crutch. Just to give you an idea... After this raise, it will have been $22 million that needed to be invested in midday squares. To scale. Yep. So yep. we're currently raising $10 million. $22 million should, in theory, get us to about $50 million of revenue. That's how right. expensive it is to scale. Yeah. That's a really interesting point because I think people think that they have to start with that kind of giant number in their minds. And I think that I haven't heard anyone say that that I've talked to so far. And I have talked with a lot of people that talk about capital raising and bootstrapping and all the different ways of going about it and crowdfunding. And it all feels very overwhelming when, when you hear it talked about, but I think it's really interesting. I've never heard anyone say, I, maybe one person, the guy from Chomps, do you know that brand? No. So there's a guy uh, who founded this meat snacks brand and it's an awesome brand. It's called Chomps. And he started with like, I don't know, $6,000 or something really small. And the same as you, he was doing it in a really small way. And it wasn't until they started to scale that they really had to find real, real money. And so that's very, very interesting to hear. It's actually quite easy to find money when you have real proof point. Yeah. The proof points for you that you mentioned were selling in places in Canada. Even yeah. less is Montreal. Like we were like. Even less than Canada. So what city? Yeah, a city. Yeah, a city we chose yeah. and we chose to blow it up in that city. So I think that's a, again too the learnings of being an entrepreneur prior to this. That mm-hmm. was actually one of the key things that we all realized was when you start really small, it feels really big for that environment. So yeah. If I start in Vancouver and Montreal, which are separated by a six-hour flight, and Becky in Vancouver tries the product and Sal in Montreal tries the product, the odds of them ever meeting each other and being excited about the product together are very low, probability. Montreal is a really small city. Like in terms of actual geography, it takes you to get around the whole thing in like two hours of driving time. And so when you start to deploy effort 
marketing effort and screaming effort and shouting effort, it goes way further when it's condensed than if I'm trying to do Vancouver and Montreal at the same time. Yeah. And so from learnings of our past, we realized, okay, let's stay ultra focused yeah. and let's make this thing feel like it's blowing up in this city. Yeah. And it does give that appeal. You make it feel like you're a national brand to your local crowd. Very smart. It's very smart. I mean, I, you know it and I know it, but I, the number of people who spread themselves way too thin at the beginning from a where they're launching standpoint and also from the number of products they launch with standpoint, it's crazy and it almost never works that way. So I think it's really important. I mean, you're giving concrete numbers. We had this much money. That doesn't feel overwhelming. We did it in this small city and it felt like it blew up. I think that's really, really cool. So what happened quickly too, but it was hard work. Like that's another thing. I think a lot of people in any industry, they get caught up with what's going on in the media and they lose track of breaking out a CPG brand is dirty. Like it's ground and pound. You're going to gyms, you're going to cafes, you're doing the deliveries yourself, you're stocking the shelves, you're doing the demoing yourself, you're doing everything yourself. But being in a small city allows you to do that. I think a lot of people want to just make the brand, go to a broker, get a sales team and let everybody do the hard work. And yep. that's where you break your head. So yeah, I want to make it very clear for anybody that is listening is that it doesn't require a massive amount of capital. I would say what it requires more than capital is 20-hour days, like for yeah. real 20-hour days. Yeah, those are long days. I mean, yeah. you have to be ready for it. Um, Tell me about your co-CEO role. I want to hear about that because you mentioned it and you are really specific about it. And there are, there are a bunch of people who are co-CEOs, but I think you're right. It means different things to different people. For record, I've thought of the co-CEO role as a ego-driven solution a lot of the times, and it, it almost never works. If you look at all the top traded publicly companies that had co-CEOs, their performance usually underperforms the S&P 500 significantly. And the reason I believe so is that you can't have two hands in the cookie jar. And a lot of times, the reason why two hands end up in the cookie jar is to appease egos. Yes. I have no problem throwing BlackBerry under the bus here. I think BlackBerry probably missed the opportunity to become iPhone, probably because there were co-CEOs. I feel like if one CEO just had the ability to make a decision and go, they wouldn't have been there. So I've always been tremendously against it. But then what happened, which changed my opinion, and this is another thing, I'm, I'm really big on strong opinions loosely held. So I had a strong opinion on that. And then I met Les, who is literally... For all intensive purposes, her and I are one human being that lives in two bodies. <laughs> That's awesome. Yeah, literally, like in order to be a trans, like think of us like a transformer. When we're separate, <laughs> we're good. But when we transform into one, we're great. We're, you know, arguably like I always call us the, the Michael Jordan of what we do, but we need to be together. Mm -hmm. The reason is, is that she has a skill set that I completely don't have. And it's more of her ability to push. Les actually believes nothing is impossible. And that is a hard place to get to mentally. Mm -hmm. it, really is. it sounds simple in theory. That's so hard. Yeah. And I find myself a lot of times stuck in, and I'm a big dreamer, and I still find myself putting square boxes around things. Yeah. She really doesn't have that. She has this capability of pushing people to limits that they've never even known existed in themselves. I don't. 
she's got this creative sense that allows things to come to what you see at midday squares that that I don't. Operationally, though, I'm a machine in terms of how I think through process and all this stuff. She's less of that. But when we get together, it's not like we operate and do two different things. We kind of bounce off each other and yeah. we figured out a way that we think through a process as a unit rather than two people doing different things as co-CEOs, which was counterintuitive to our board, counterintuitive to everything. A lot of times in a co-CEO role, you'll literally split the tasks. Yeah. Yes. But we chose not to. Yeah. Everybody reports to us as one because we're trying to get a different outcome, which is we've realized, hey, we can't actually be one person, but we can operate as one person, but we're just in the physical world, two people. So that's why I want to talk about the co-CEO role, because if you are becoming co-CEOs out of ego reasons, I would probably say it's going to fail. Yeah. Like where one person just can't handle not having the title. And I remember Les was actually trying to bow out from the role. She did not want it, especially as we're getting ready to potentially go public next year. She did not want it. It took a lot of therapy sessions and that to convince her that it, I don't believe the company's as great with me just leaving the helm by myself. I need her to do it with me. Do you think that the fact that you were married makes that easier or can other co-CEOs interact the way that you guys do? It's a hard question. I don't know. I mean, I, I, it's my reality. It will probably, no, I don't think it would be as simple for other yeah. co-CEOs to do. Yeah, yeah. I think because we're so holistically one in our entire life, it probably makes mm-hmm. it work. And, and you're connected why, in a lot of ways. Yeah. yeah. That's why I wanted to have this conversation with you so that people don't go and get the idea that the best thing that they can do is have a co-CEO. Yeah. Probably a poor decision. <laughs> Interesting. Talk about your coaching that you're doing. Cause I also think that, I mean, I'm going to make some guesses because I'm a really huge believer in coaching. I've been doing it for a long, long time. And I can imagine why you're doing it. Cause I know how hard the job is and how many ups and downs are, but I want to hear what you really think and why you're doing it. Okay. So it's a little bit of a stretch, but I'll give it as concise as possible. My dad dies when I'm 10 years old. We got to start there because that was what got me into the world of therapy. So that was my first forego into it. Then this man, Rory Olson, comes into my life, kind of is a father figure and a ridiculous executive in Montreal, founder of PaySafe, which is the third largest pay wallet in the world. And I worked every summer with him until about 20. He, as an executive, was always seeing a performance coach. And then when I was playing hockey, I was playing at a very competitive level. I was a goalie. He forced me into when I was 15 years old to see this guy, Howard Schwartz. Howard Schwartz is a athletic performance coach for MLB pitchers Wow, to help them deal with the pressure of being an MLB pitcher, which is very similar to a goaltender. And Howard was the single reason where I went from being a good goalie to a great goalie. Like we're talking, I went from being in the middle of the pack, playing at the highest level to leading the top three in the pack in the country and then going to the U.S. and stuff like that. And the reason why I have to say that is not to pat myself on the back for my success is no, Howard unlocked stuff in me mentally that allowed me to play the game at a level that others weren't playing. Yeah. And so ever since I saw that performance coaching, and it usually has to be someone that is a PhD in psychology and behavioral or cognitive psychology was like 
mandated for me for everything I was doing. Then in my 20s, I lost my way a little bit with that. And I was in my software company that I was that I had joined and I felt lost along the way. And I had this buddy, Andrew Sider, who was seeing Dr. James Gavin, who was introduced to me. Dr. James Gavin was introduced to him by the CEO of Shopify as performance coach. So a lot of people don't know this, but Tobias Luke, who's the CEO of Shopify, caught on to this idea of performance coaches before most software companies in the industry did. Shopify employs more performance coaches on staff than any other company in North America. And so their performance coach was given to Andrew Sider, my close friend, who was then introduced to me in 2014, I want to say, 13 or 14. So I was seeing him and I could never get my old partners to see him all at the same time. Not just because of them, because of me. I was, you know, everybody was figuring out their self. And I had started to develop this idea of executive teams would probably be so strong if they seeked out performance coaches that worked with them as a group and as individuals. Mm -hmm. So before we did this, you got to remember that my partner is my wife and my brother-in-law. Those are touchy relationships. Oh my goodness. Yes. Yes. So I asked them, it wasn't an ask, it was a demand that I could not go through with starting midday squares unless we agreed collectively that we were going to see a performance coach every single week, good or bad. And yeah, I, I mean, you know, Jake and Les could speak to you on that matter. They weren't sure. Les was sure about it. Jake wasn't so sure about it. And it's arguably, I think, Midday Squares' largest competitive edge is how advanced we are as communicators amongst each other with our Mm -hmm. teammates. Yeah, we push ourselves to a whole other level. And choosing the coach is very important, too. Like, I think a lot of people just go and find subpar people like, you know, Dr. James Gavin, a still a professor, fresh in a PhD behavioral psychology has dealt with American Airlines executive teams was there for 10 years. Jim, who we call him, is so crazy that when he was hired by a mining corporation to go do coaching for their executives under strenuous conditions, he did it under the condition that he had to be a miner for a year before he became a coach. He literally went wow. as a fucking miner for one year because he psychologically couldn't understand the yeah. environment unless he did it himself. Yeah. I mean, that's the level of people you got to be working with. And I think there's a lot of false prophets out there today. So just beware. There, well, there are. I mean, because it's easy to get certified as a coach. It's so easy. It's ridiculous. And it's interesting because I think at the beginning, when you started your company, that must have felt like a really big expense to you guys. Yeah, but it was always our investors pay for it happily. It was not even a question. It was like, yeah, I think it's really smart. I've done a lot of work with coaching and I did coaching training. And if you think about how we grow up and what we don't learn about emotional fitness and how to handle problems and challenges, we don't get taught that unless we're on a sports team. And if you're not, you don't get period. Like just communicating there. You know, one thing I really learned humans are taught language is a function of description. It was never intended on being a communicative tool of emotion. So the, the origination of language was there to be a labeling mechanism, yes. numbers, 
we have five rocks. We, you know, and it developed into communication, but emotions are so abstract that it's actually very complicated to communicate emotion. And so there's a very big difference between verbalizing and communicating. And a lot of humans think they're communicating when they're just verbalizing. Yep. Those are the things we work on every day. Yes. Like I said it, so I said it, right? But that's different than someone understood it. It's so brilliant. I love it. So awesome to hear things like this because I think people don't even realize what they don't know. And there are so many things that are important when you're in this world where every day is a challenge. I mean, you're talking about everything in such a positive way, but I'm sure you face lots of challenges along the way. All the time. Every day. Yeah. All the time. We had an employee die on us in our first six months of at a company retreat. Uh, a teammate drowned. Oh, my gosh. Yeah. I mean, we've been through the ringer at Midday Squares up and down. I mean, you don't survive unless you learn how to communicate. Yeah. Another really big thing that I think, you know, is just really important is anger is a secondary emotion of usually anxiety, sadness. Anger is always a secondary emotion. So, you know, like simple stuff we've learned to do is to start a communication with I'm feeling anxious right now. Whereas before we learned that and start to become communicate, like it's hard to become registered in our brain. It would be anger. It yep. would be pointing a finger. And what I realized in my last partnership, I had four partners, me being one of them. I thought I hated a lot of them by the end of it. And I'm sure they probably thought they hated me, but really in retrospect and thinking about everything, the pressure we were under manifested energy that I didn't know yet in my life how to control. And it turned to anger. And then the anger needed somewhere to go. And they were my outlets. But really, I was anxious. I was in a pressure state. I was in a fear state. I just was in a bad place when I would make a lot of those decisions. Interesting. And also so valuable. Before we wrap up, I mean, you've given such great advice. The coaching is probably the most interesting and compelling thing I've heard in a long, long time. But tell me, what would you say to someone who's struggling right now and is ready to give up or is starting and doesn't know what to do? What kind of advice would you give them? Ooh, that's a packed question. It is packed. We could do another podcast on advice, I'm sure. No, but I mean, one, advice is overrated. Okay, so that's that's one. Advice is overrated. All one can give you is their experience. So don't take it literal. Two is use first principles thinking to get you through really difficult moments. And that first principles thinking, let me, I want to distill it to it. Everybody didn't want us to be a manufacturer. But the first principles was we needed to bring a 10x product, better product to market. And the only way to do that was to figure out how to manufacture. And so following that Instinct is very actually innate in a lot of entrepreneurs. It's there. It actually is the noise that blocks it, a lot of your decision-making. And so, I mean, on the down moments, remember that it's not supposed to be easy because if it was easy, then everybody would do it. And what you are getting rewarded for as an entrepreneur is grit and endurance. And so the pain is, you know, like everybody's dealing with that pain. And so when you're going through the pain, it's about asking yourself, for me at least, is how bad do you want it? And that's the only thing that's going to differentiate you from the next entrepreneur. It has nothing to do with intelligence, skill set. It is pure fucking grit. And often to your point that you said at the beginning of this 
is a lot of people give up right before success. And for me, the saddest part of entrepreneurship is people take such few swings and have such massive expectations in their lives out of themselves. And you got to remember, I think this is always a great analogy to be an MLB, so Major League uh, Baseball Hall of Famer, you have to have a batting average above 30%. And often entrepreneurs, they think they're going to go one for one. So batting average of 100%. And 90% of the entrepreneurs I know around me stopped after their second one. So that means that they're assuming that they're going to have a batting average of 50%. And so just keep swinging. That's it. You know, get over the idea of what people will say. You know, entrepreneurship's this thing where everybody laughs at you until you're not, and then everybody wants you on a podcast, right? <laughs> uh, you know, That's right. You're, you're a big fucking joke until then. And that happened yeah. with everybody around me in my life. At one point, I almost gave up on being an entrepreneur simply because I wasn't connecting. Well, I will tell you, honestly, this has been the most inspiring podcast I've done. And you've given me a lot of things to think about in my own world. So I really appreciate that. I don't always feel that way at the end. And I really, I have enjoyed this conversation so much. I think that we're very aligned in how we feel about some of the things and some of the ways that you kind of get through the day. So I really appreciate your time so much. Thank you. I appreciate it. It's a hard journey. It's just a hard journey. There's this, like, it is not supposed to be easy. Yeah, it's not. But sometimes you want it to just for a day. (laughs) And it's okay. It's okay. It's okay to want that. There's also one thing that I do want to leave on because this is important that I think other entrepreneurs need to hear is there's got to be a time where you stop giving a fuck about the business. And, And that's a big piece I want people to know. There's literally a period of where Les and I look at each other and we do not care if Midday Squares burns down and that allows us to recharge. It's very important. So Friday should be fun. You should be always getting ready to check out. That's what I'm going to do. I'm going to go to the office. It's a very light day, get everybody fired up and we, we go out and we enjoy the weekend. Awesome. Awesome. Well, I hope you have a great weekend. I will talk to you again very soon. Thank you. You too. Kill it. Bye. Bye. Thank you for listening to The Irresistible Factor. I'm Christy Bridges, and I can't wait to see you next Wednesday.